are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join me today uh, for a question and answer time on our YouTube channel. What we like to do whenever we're able, and that's most Thursdays now, one way or another, is we come together for an hour or so on a Thursday afternoon, and I take your questions about the Bible or the Christian life or whatever. This is a service that we do for our YouTube audience and anybody else who might be interested. And I'm not able to make it each and every week. And when I'm not able to make it, we're very pleased to have a a guest come in and be part of our team to fill in for me. I want to thank Pastor Bill Walden, who heads up sort of our Spanish outreach and ministry aspect here at Enduring Word, because we have an extensive work of translating my Bible commentary into Spanish. Bill Walden filled in last week, and thank you, Bill. You did a fantastic job, and we're looking forward to having you on again at another time. Uh, What we want to do on our afternoon times here is we begin with a lead question. A lead question may be something that I just want to talk about. Maybe it's a question that came in from uh, email or a comment on a uh, YouTube video, something like that. Today's question came in through our TWR360 audience. Now, let me say this. I don't know. I didn't have a name attached to this question, so I'm just going to go ahead and give it. But uh, we're very grateful for our TWR360 audience. If this is you, part of our Trans World Radio 360 audience, we want to welcome you. We're so happy that this question and answer time can also be distributed on their platform. We think it's just a wonderful tool. Very happy about that. But Our uh, TWR360 audience, someone among it, sent this question. Apparently, it was a question that Bill wasn't able to get to last week, so I'm happy to follow up on it here for this week. Here's the question. Ready? I'm working my way through the Bible, and I've come to Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Where did these giants come from? Were they not all wiped out in the great flood? Well, let me say that is an excellent question because Numbers chapter 13 verses 32 and 33 definitely mention some giants existing in the days of Moses and then later Joshua, uh, which of course is obviously significantly later than the time of the great flood as recorded in the book of Genesis. So um, let me get to the question in a minute. I, I just want to get first to the uh, passage that's referenced here. Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Let's take a look at that just so that we're all sort of on the same page together and we know what we're talking about. Here we go. Uh, Numbers chapter 13, starting at verse 32, where we read this. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report uh, of the land of which they had spied out, saying... The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight." 
So uh, this is really an interesting dilemma here to talk about. I'll talk a little bit more about the context of Numbers chapter 13 in a moment. You know, um, right now I'm doing my own sort of in-depth study through the book of Numbers. And I'm doing it because um, my Bible commentary that's out on the internet is something that is under constant revision. And really, uh, one of the greatest joys of my life is to be able to spend time working through the scriptures in a way that is, for me, deep and significant. I don't know, I suppose maybe for other people it's not so deep or not so significant, but for me it is. And I I do that especially with areas of my written commentary that I worked on decades ago. Like, I think my original work on the book of Numbers is probably maybe 25 years old. And so for me, it's wonderful joy to go through it deeply again. Now, I I say all that to say this. I haven't yet got to chapter 13. I'm I'm just finishing up Numbers chapter 11 right now. So I looked ahead and did a little bit of a deep dive here onto this very significant question. So let me let me deal with the question kind of in its in its, um, you know, context. First of all, I want you to note that this is really only a question for people who take the Bible seriously. That is, they believe that when the Bible says something happened, it really happened. So, when the Bible says that there was a worldwide or global flood in the days of Noah, I believe it. Some people don't. They think that the book of Genesis just describes a local flood not a true global flood. But if we take the Bible seriously, and if we believe that it tells us the truth about what happened in the past, then we have at least an apparent problem here. What's our apparent problem? Well, the Bible tells us that there were giants on the earth in those days, the days of Noah before the flood. You can look that up at Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Genesis also tells us that because of God's judgment, the entire human population of the earth perished. Again, this was in the judgment of God, except for eight people, Noah and his family. So here's our problem if we're taking the Bible seriously as a serious historical record. If all the giants on the earth in those days, as Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 terms them, if all of they perished in God's judgment with the flood, then why do their descendants seem to reappear in Canaan, the promised land, in Numbers chapter 13 verses 32 and 34, where, I could show it to you again, here's the text that we find here, it says, The land which we have gone out as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants. So how do we reconcile these? How can you have these people uh, wiped out, destroyed in God's judgment in Genesis 6, and yet seem to have their descendants reappear in Numbers chapter 13? Well, here's my quick answer to this. Uh, Well, I say it's a quick answer because I'll kind of give you the answer and then I'll explain it. My quick answer is that these giants in Canaan, the promised land, and in the days of Exodus and Joshua, 
that these particular ones were not genetically connected to the giants of Genesis chapter 6. They were not the actual descendants of those people in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I believe this for at least three reasons. Number one, I believe this because of the context of Numbers chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Remember, that passage in Numbers is the report of the unfaithful spies. These unfaithful spies who went into the promised land, there were 12 in total, 10 of them were unfaithful, the two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, they brought back a good report, but the 10 unfaithful spies brought back a bad report. That's what it describes it there in Numbers chapter 13. And this bad report exaggerated the dangers that awaited the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. Those um, spies who gave a bad report, the unfaithful spies, they were not giving a scientific or a genetic analysis here. This was a report of fear and unbelief. These were frightened Israelites saying, these people are just as big and just as terrible and just as evil as the giants that walked the earth in Noah's time. This was an exaggeration, and it certainly wasn't a scientific analysis. Now, it was true that the 10 unfaithful spies said this, and it was true, I don't doubt, that some of the people populating the land of Canaan that they saw were large people. But it is not true that they were genetically connected to the giants on the earth in the days of Noah described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Those large men of Canaan just reminded the fearful, unbelieving hearts and minds of those 10 unfaithful spies of the giants in Noah's time. That's the first reason I believe it. I also believe this because of the phrasing of the later mentions of these giants in the book of Deuteronomy. Check this out in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says this, The Emim had dealt there in times past a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them Emim. Okay, so do you see that? Look especially at the phrase, they were also regarded as giants. Now look, I understand that maybe there's some nuance in the Hebrew that isn't well reflected by the English translation of the New King James Version that I'm looking at right there. But at least as it's explained in the translation of the New King James Version, it says that they were regarded as giants. That's all. So these large people that made up some of the tribes that occupied Canaan in the days of Joshua, these were simply large people that people associated with these legendary giants that were also on the earth before the days of Noah. 
Uh, there's also a similar reference to this in Deuteronomy chapter 2, starting at verse 20, but we don't need to get into that. And, and that would be my third reason, is I believe that it best accounts for what we read in Genesis chapter 6, Numbers chapter 13, and in Deuteronomy chapter 2, this idea. So again, here's my answer to this really good question. The giants in Canaan, the promised land, described in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, were not genetically connected to the giants of Genesis chapter 6. They were not their actual true descendants, but rather they were named in memory of those descendants. And really, it was a connection that these people made that was in fact a connection of unbelief, not really a connection uh, of belief in these particular people. So that's my answer to uh, our unnamed questioner from TWR360. So pleased that they could be a part of today's uh, broadcast, whatever we want to call this, video feed. And I'm very pleased that you can be here as well. So let me get to some of the questions that are coming in on the side chat here. Um, the first question comes from Junebug. Junebug asks this question, as a pastor, would you baptize someone who professed Jesus as Lord and Savior, but was living in open and unrepentant sin? Wow, Junebug, that is an excellent question. An excellent question. Um, and I hear that question and almost say that I could argue it from either side. Now, I'll tell you which side I think is stronger, but I could argue it from either side. Okay, the first side to say, yes, I would baptize someone who professes Jesus as Lord and Savior, but is living in open and unrepentant sin, the, the argument for doing that is there doesn't seem to be a um, moral performance qualification for being baptized. We just don't see this in the New Testament. We find people being baptized immediately upon a profession of faith. In other words, they're not waiting to get baptized. They are being immediately baptized on their profession of faith. They're not waiting to demonstrate a certain moral performance. That's the argument in favor of baptizing. But I think that there's a better argument to be made for not baptizing them. And here's the argument to be made in that. It's really inherent in your question. Junebug, you say this. Would you baptize someone who professed Jesus as Lord and Savior, but was living in open and unrepentant sin? Well, Junebug, you have to admit, there's something wrong with someone's profession of Jesus as Lord if they are living in open and flagrant disobedience to Jesus. Now look, this concept can of course be taken too far. We understand that completely. It is possible for people to associate a big moral test with the idea 
a baptism and, you know, well, um, I, you know, said a bad word a month ago, so I shouldn't, um, you know, be baptized or something like that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about flagrant, open rebellion against God. We can say this about that person. They are not living as if Jesus is the Lord of their life. They may may make that profession with their mouth. Okay, perhaps they do. But they're not living as if that is the case. And really, that's what we're talking about here with this profession of faith. If somebody has a profession of faith, but there is open and clear contradiction to that profession of faith, we have every reason to question that profession of faith. And therefore, I would go on the side of saying that I would not baptize them. Now, I would deal with them not necessarily as if they were an unbeliever, but perhaps as a believer in great danger. Look, let's recognize this. It is possible for a believer for a time to be in um, sin, to be in what we might even call stubborn sin. Uh, that is possible. We can't say that that is somehow just a, an impossibility at a particular time. No. Now, we do say, based on passages such in 1 John and other passages, that a Christian cannot feel, a genuine Christian cannot feel comfortable in habitual sin. Uh, but that's another thing entirely than um, a believer being caught up in sin for a season and being tormented in the midst of it. They're just, they're just miserable in the midst of it. Um, so we recognize those two kind of um, ends of this different question. And Junebug, I would just say that no, I would not baptize such a person uh, even though I understand the case for the other side, I think that the greater evidence is on the case for saying, no, they should not be baptized until uh, their profession is more in line with their actual life. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you there, Junebug. Okay, uh, Jonathan asked the question. That would actually be my son. My son, Jonathan, is viewing the program. Good on you, son. I'm glad I can answer this. My son Jonathan asks, when did the clearing of the temple begin, before Jesus's triumphal entry or after? Well, Jonathan, uh, according to the timeline that's in my mind, um, actually what we have to say is that there were two separate clearings of the temple. One at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, which I believe is described in the Gospel of John. I may be incorrect on that. And another that's described at, towards the end of Jesus's ministry after the triumphal entry. So again, I'm doing this from memory. I'd want to look it up to be entirely sure. But I believe that Jesus did the second cleansing of the temple after his triumphal entry. Now, there are some people, and they're called by some Bible scholars, and I suppose in some sense they are Bible scholars, but they don't seem to take the Bible as seriously as I think it should be taken, they would say that there was only one cleansing of the temple and John either got it wrong 
or he's just making it up and placing it wherever he wants to. Because again, according to my memory, it's in the gospel of John that the cleansing of the temple is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But to have two clearings of the temple separated by some three or maybe even up to four years apart, that's debating whether or not there were three or four Passovers that encompassed the ministry of Jesus. That doesn't seem strange or unusual to me at all. And so I have no problem saying that there were two cleansing of the temples. One, again, to my memory, recorded in the Gospel of John, at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, obviously long before the triumphal entry. And then another one described in the Synoptic Gospels after the triumphal entry, one of the first things Jesus did as he came as a king to Jerusalem. So again, when did the clearing of the temple happen before Jesus's triumphal entry or after? Uh, I believe the one that you're thinking of happened after the triumphal entry. Okay, great. A uh, few questions now combined on Halloween themes. Alfredo asks, should Christians celebrate Halloween? And was it a Christian holiday? And Adonis asks, will you please compare sorcery with magic and witchcraft and spellcasting? Will you please compare mediums and spiritists and necromancers and diviners? Okay, these are big questions. Alfredo, I think we dealt with this question a couple weeks ago, and I do want to be clear on this. Um, there are uh, believers whom I respect who are of different attitudes about this. So I'm going to give you my perspective. You can take it for what's it, what it's worth, but here's my perspective on this. My perspective is, is that, number one, it's true that the origins and, uh, if you want to say, uh, ancient or old associations with Halloween were evil, um, ranging into the occult, associated with the demonic. I don't think there's any doubts about the ancient origins of it or of the fact that today it's a day that is celebrated by certain pagans and Satanists and other people with occult things because of those ancient associations. That's one thing. I, I don't have any problem acknowledging that. The second thing, though, is I want to acknowledge what Halloween is today for many people. I would say for the majority of people, Halloween is today about dressing up and getting candy. Little kids dress up in costumes and they go to a party or they go door to door and get candy. It is uh, almost completely removed from those associations that it had in centuries past. So I really believe that this is a matter of Christian conscience. I believe it's up to a father and a mother in a home to decide, are we going to recognize this? And as they pray about it and seek the Lord about it and get informed about it, if they believe, no, this is not something we should acknowledge as a family, God bless them in that, I support you 100%. You should act according to your Christian conscience. However, if a family says, look, our kids love dressing up in a costume and getting candy. Who doesn't love that? Um, it, 
it's associated in our home and in the thinking of the kids away from those things. We, we don't have any problem with this. If they prayed about it, if they sought the Lord, I would honor their conscience in it as well. So I believe that whether or not Christians can have any kind of recognition of Halloween or a fall festival or a harvest festival or dress up time, whatever you want to call it, I believe it's up to individual Christian conscience. We should respect our brothers and sisters if they come to a different conclusion than we do. It's okay for us to explain why we've come to our conclusion. That's fine. But we should understand that in the end, this is something that God needs to deal with the individual believer about. So that's the first one. Should Christians celebrate Halloween? I think it's between them and the Lord and what it would mean for their particular family. Um, You asked the question, was it a Christian holiday? And I would say no, except if you want to call it as being the eve of All Saints Day. Now, All Saints Day is recognized in the Roman Catholic Church on November 1st. Again, I'm doing this from memory, but All Saints Day, recognized by the Roman Catholic Church on November 1st, that was the day to recognize saints that were not included in the other days of the year and to honor all saints collectively. Because that was thought to be such a holy day, because it recognized all the saints, the night before in some Christian circles was also held to be something significant. But that is a small part of the association. I think it's a real association, but a small part of the ancient association. I don't think you could say that it genuinely began as a Christian holiday, though I don't doubt that in um, medieval days, for example, there were people who regarded the night before All Saints Day to be something sacred. That's kind of even where we get the name Halloween. It's Hallow's Eve. Hallowed meaning holy or saint-like, All Saints Day Eve. It's the evening before All Saints Day. Then the questions from Adonis, comparing sorcery with magic and witchcraft and spellcasting. Well, um, listen, Adonis, you know, I I could throw sorcery, the casting of spells. Now, Magic, I really don't know the sense in which you mean that question. Do you mean like magic tricks, like somebody does a sleight of hand? I think that sleight of hand tricks for entertainment are completely different than occultic arts. Now, I believe sometimes they cross over with each other, but they don't necessarily cross over with each other at all. Um, So where does that come in? Um, witchcraft, that's the practice of what witches do. Spell casting, that's very much like sorcery. And, and so, I, I, I don't know, if, if you're really looking for me to give a detailed definition of this is a medium, a medium is someone who, who stands in between um, the world of the spirit and the physical world and is in the medium, is in between the both of them. A spirit is someone who deals with spirits, especially unclean spirits. A necromancer, someone who deals with the dead. Diviner, someone who tries to um, predict the future. 
uh, using the help of spiritism. That's basically these basic, very quick definitions of all these things. Uh, these are all different aspects of occultic arts, except for perhaps I would say magic, depending on how magic is defined. Okay, let me go on to uh, the next question from Anne-Marie. She asks, how tall were the giants? Anne-Marie, let me give you a definite answer on that. We don't know. We don't know. Now, we are given the height of one giant recorded in the scriptures, Goliath. Uh, his height is given at something like eight or nine feet tall, a huge man. But we don't actually know if he was unusually big and large as a giant. <laughs> Maybe he was a small giant. Maybe he was a medium-sized giant. We just don't actually know where Goliath was on the giant scale, so to speak. When the book of Genesis mentions giants, it gives us nothing about their size. When the book of Numbers mentions giants, it gives us nothing about their size. When the book of Deuteronomy mentions giants, nothing about their size. So the only mention of a specific size is given in reference to one specific giant, that is the man Goliath, and we don't know if he was on the larger side of giants, on the shorter side, medium, we just don't know. So there really is no answer to that question, Henry. They were large, big men and supposedly women. I really don't know. Okay, John, John Wisner. God bless you, John Wisner. Nice to hear from you. Ask the question, where do we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible? Well, there are a few indications in, I think it's Leviticus and Numbers and maybe even Deuteronomy, that Moses wrote those books. Exodus and Genesis are given more by rabbinic attribution and by the New Testament passages where those books are quoted and Jesus says, have you not read in Moses? So John, here's what I want you to do. If you want to look up those references, just do a word search for the name Moses in the New Testament, and you'll find several places where Moses is attributed as being the author of the first five books of the Bible, or at least some of them. So it's not all the same way. We do know that there are certain passages that tell us how God spoke to Moses and he wrote it down. Uh, again, I think that's in the book of Numbers, maybe in Leviticus as well. So we do have some definite passages like that, but I think the best evidence we have are the New Testament references to those five books and to find that the New Testament speaks of them, confirming the rabbinic opinion of its day, that those were actually books written by the man Moses, the prophet Moses. So, John, hope that's helpful for you. God bless you and your family. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Pixie. Pixie asks, why does Genesis 6-4 speak of the offspring of the giants and also afterward? Okay, let me read the verse. There were also giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them, 
They were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Pixie, that's a great question. I think that that is best answered by saying that there, Moses, the author of Genesis, is simply making the connection to the large men who were referred to as giants. I would put it to you this way. If this was the only verse having to do with the existence of giants, we would say, well, then they went up. But we do have the, the very clear testimony in Genesis chapter 7. I think it's verse 23 or 24. I mean, we, we have to reckon with that. I'm going to find that and read that just because it's such an important verse. Genesis chapter 7. Verse 23, so he, meaning God, so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Now, we would say that if these giants survived the flood and carried on their genetic line afterward, that would sure seem to be a contradiction of Genesis chapter 7, verse 23, which is very emphatic that all human life, and you could even say human connected life, perished. So I would say that in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, and again, this is an excellent question, when it says, and also afterward, it's talking about those people who were associated with those giants, not people who were genetically connected to those giants. Again, I understand that may seem to be an inadequate answer, but to me, that is the best answer taking into account Genesis chapter 7, Verse 24. Okay, uh, Ridwan asks the question, um, if God is sovereign and omniscient, why do we need to pray? Well, Ridwan, here's how I would explain it. For some wonderful reason, God has chosen to intertwine his sovereign will with the real choices of men and women, including their choices to pray or not to pray. You know, there, there are some passages of Scripture where God says, I think about this in terms of the people of Israel, I think perhaps it's in the book of Numbers. It could be in the book of Exodus, where God basically says, I think, again, it's in Exodus. I'm going to wipe out the people of Israel, Moses. And Moses prays and God relents. Now, I think what God wants us to believe from that is that the prayer of Moses mattered. How the real choice that Moses had to pray 
intertwined with the eternal and sovereign will of God, I think that is beyond our comprehension. But I defy anybody to read that passage in the book of Exodus and to say that the prayer of Moses didn't matter. That God was going to relent all along whether Moses prayed or didn't pray. I don't think that's how it works. And we can say the same or a similar thing uh, about many places in scriptures. There are places in scriptures where God certainly gives us the impression that life and death, heaven and hell, uh, victory or defeat, all rest upon the prayers of God's people. And most specifically, we'd say the response of God to those prayers, because it doesn't rest directly upon the people of God, of course. But it does rest on God's response to his prayer. So I think this is a very important point to bring up. Our prayers matter. And how they intertwine with the sovereign will of God, we can't say. But God has revealed to us in the scriptures that our prayers matter one way or another. Hey, I do want to give a welcome to our many friends tuning in from Nebraska, uh, from Woodstock, Georgia, from Chicago, from Las Vegas, Hong Kong, New Jersey, Alabama, Germany, South Africa. Hey, greetings to you all and many more. So pleased that you could be joining us today for our live question and answer. Let me go on to another question here from Jeanette. Jeanette asks, when the angel of the Lord appeared before men in the Old Testament, do you think that he looked similar to the way that he looked as a man during his earthly ministry? Boy, you know, again, I, I want to compliment our viewing audience on the excellence of their questions. Jeanette, this is a great question. And what you're really getting at here is the idea that on most occasions in the Old Testament where it describes the angel of the Lord appearing to somebody, that that was actually an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation, before he was con uh, um, conceived in Mary's womb by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, without normal marital relations, he was conceived in Mary's womb and um, born later in the village of Bethlehem. Jesus appeared as the angel of the Lord several times before that in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot to say about that that I won't get into right now. But Jeanette, I would say Yes, I believe that he did look like. Now, again, that's pure conjecture. Let's be very honest about this. The Bible doesn't tell us, does it? We can only guess at this. But to me, I would just say it would seem fitting if Jesus had the same appearance as a man appearing as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament as he had as a man when he walked the earth during his earthly ministry. Again, I, I want to be very clear with our viewers. There's no biblical reason for that supposition. 
to me, it just sounds good. So it's not like I can, you know, fight for that opinion. It's just my opinion. But I would say, yes, uh, he did look the same. Okay, next one comes from Jordan. Jordan asks, what is your belief about the blasphemy of the Spirit? There are many views of sin unto death in 1 John. What is your viewpoint of the text? Well, Jordan, I think that as I explain in my commentary in 1 John, where it talks about this sin of um, sinning unto death, as it's described there in 1 John, and I'm kind of looking up my commentary here, um, where he talks about that sin that is leading to death. Um, because John writes in the context of a brother in this passage. Let me read to you verses 16 and 17 of John, 1 John chapter 5. If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit the sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Okay, the context is praying for a brother. So when he says a sin leading to death, I don't believe that he's speaking about a sin leading to spiritual death. That would be the result of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We understand, or let me just say for myself, I understand the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to be the sin wherein someone has a settled, steady, if you want to say permanent, rejection of who the Holy Spirit says Jesus is and what he came to do. That is one of the main functions of the Holy Spirit, to testify to us about who the Holy Spirit is and what he came to do. If someone continually denies that, they could be very well guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and they will not inherit eternal life. The death they will experience is spiritual death and for all eternity. Now, I don't believe that the sin leading to death spoken of by the Apostle John in 1 John uh, chapter 5 refers to spiritual death. I think it refers to the physical death of the believer. Now, I'll agree this is a difficult concept, but we have an example of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says that among the Christians in Corinth, because of their disgraceful conduct at the Lord's Supper, some of them had actually died. Um, again, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Apparently, it is possible for a believer to sin to the point where God believes it's just best, best, I should say, to bring them home to heaven. Maybe, and I'm just speculating here, maybe because they have in some way compromised their testimony so significantly that they should just come on home to God. Now, it, it's very presumptuous for us to think about every case of an untimely death of a believer as being this kind of situation. Well, we need to be very cautious about that. A, a believer dies in an unexpected or untimely way. Well, 
They must have been so sinful, God took them home. No, be very, very, I'll say it a third time, very careful with that. But again, we say that I think it, it's at least possible for it to happen. So uh, that, that's the way I would explain that there. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the settled, persistent, if you want to say final rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony as to who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Okay, next question comes from Joshua. Uh, Do you believe the heart of Paul's vow in Acts chapter 21 refers to him being all things to all men that he uh, may save some? Well, you know what? That's an interesting question. Let me run over to Acts chapter 21 and make sure I remember the vow that you're speaking of. The vow I believe he's speaking of because Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem because he uh, has a vow that he wanted to fulfill. And the vow I think you're mentioning here, I'm looking here, looking here. Okay, the vow, yes, yes, okay, I understand now, Joshua, the question that you're asking. Because there were a few vows that Paul took as recorded in the book of Acts. Earlier in the book of Acts, we have evidence that he took the vow of a Nazarite. Here seems to be a different kind of dedication vow. And it was a vow taken at the temple by some believers. These were Christians, these were believers. However, they from a Jewish background, and they apparently, and the early church did not see this, they did not see certain aspects of temple ritual to be done away with by their Christian faith. Now, certainly, many aspects of the temple ritual they understood to be done away with by the personal work of Jesus Christ, most notably anything having to do with the atonement of sin. There could be no more animal sacrifice for atonement or forgiveness or cleansing of sin. No, not at all. That was completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. However, when we understand the sacrificial system Not every sacrifice was made, first of all, with blood. Secondly, was made for the purpose of atoning for sins. There were sacrifices that were made for dedication unto God, something like the vow of a Nazarite. Apparently, the first Christians did not see inconsistency between such vows or sacrifices fulfilled at the temple and the Christian life. So, what simply we find in Acts chapter 21 is Paul participating in such a vow with these other believers from a Jewish background. And look, I think Paul would say, yeah, I could take this or leave this, but I really want to encourage and bless these believers, um, 
And so I'll participate. I, I believe certainly you could categorize that as being all things to all men that he could by some means save some. Okay. Charlene asks the question, is having a conversation with God considered praying? Charlene, to give a quick answer to your question, I would simply say yes. Now, it could be bad praying, <laughs> if I could say that. And what do I mean by bad praying? If our conversation with God forgets that it's God to whom we're speaking. Now, I'm not saying that we can that we have to speak with God only in a formal way. You know, if you wanted to take it to an extreme with these and thous and such things like that. No, our conversation with God does not always have to be formal, but it always has to be respectful and honoring to God. And you can have a casual, respectful, God-honoring conversation with the Lord that would absolutely be considered not only prayer, but I would even call it good prayer. Now, some of our prayers aren't good for several reasons. One of the reasons could be that we are just not honoring to God. We're not respectful to Him. And because God is God and we are not we should always be respectful to the Lord when we speak to him. So I think that's the way that I would consider that. Mason asks the question, how do God's promises work? Does he ever break his promises to us? His promise to answer prayer or to protect us from evil, for example. All right, well, Mason, I think, let, let me ask you, or let me respond by making a few observations. First of all, I would say no, God never breaks a promise that he makes. I mean, we would just say breaking a promise would be sinful. And so God doesn't sin. It's impossible for God to sin. It's impossible for him to lie, the Bible says specifically. And in some regard, a broken promise is a lie. And the Bible clearly says, it is impossible for God to lie. So no, God can't break his promises. But where we often error with God's promises is we sort of assume that every promise of God is for every person in every circumstance. And it's just not true. So let me explain it to you this way. There are promises that you can find in the Bible of God's protection of the believer. Yet, nevertheless, there have been many believers in the true and right God who have been martyred for their faith. And it would be accurate, or it would be, um, let me just say, uh, natural is a better word than accurate. It would be natural for someone to look at that and say, well, I guess God broke his promise. God promised to protect this person and they died for their faith. So obviously God didn't protect them. He, uh, he broke his promise. And I would say, no, no. God's promises of protection are not universal. 
but rather God will take such a promise, make it alive by his spirit to an individual's life, and say, right here, right now, this promise is for you. Now, I can point to a broader sense in which that promise of protection is true, even for the martyred believer. How is it true? Well, listen, when a believer is martyred, they're certainly safe then. They're certainly protected then. Nothing can harm them or reach them or hurt them in heaven. They've passed from temporary protection to eternal protection. So you could say that in a sense, heaven is the ultimate fulfillment of every promise that God makes to his people. But even on this earth, God fulfills his promises as they are specifically applied to an individual in their particular situation. So we can't just read through the Bible and assume, number one, that every promise is for us. But even the promises that are for believers in general may have application to a specific situation which we may or may not fit into. So, Mason, that's how I would describe how, in general, the promises of God work. I hope that's helpful for you. Then, finally, uh, Army Apologetics asks the question, Jews versus Gentiles, who is greater in the eyes of God? Man, that is such a good question. Let me ask it again. Jews versus Gentiles, who is greater in the eyes of God? The answer to that question, Army, is yes. That's the only way I can answer it. The Jewish people are great in the eyes of God. The Gentiles are great in the eyes of God. God has a heart for the entire world, including Jews and Gentiles. God does not prefer one or the other, although we would say God has chosen the Jewish people for a very specific role in his unfolding plan of the ages, a role that he chose no other people or nation for, but it doesn't make them greater in the eyes of God. Listen, let's be honest. The specific role that the Jewish people have had in the unfolding plan of God, their status as a chosen nation Sometimes it's been a great blessing to them. Sometimes it's been a tremendous burden to them. Blessing or burden, they have been chosen by God. And it doesn't make them greater in the eyes of God than anyway. The answer to who is greater in the eyes of God, the Jews or the Gentiles, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> they are both great and valued and uh, precious by God. He wants the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. Yes, he's the Savior of Israel, but he's the Savior of the world. He wants the redeeming work that comes to us through who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. He wants that to be extended to everyone who will believe upon him, and it will be. You can be among those who believe upon him today and receive that great work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
I genuinely appreciate your prayers for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. We are in a season where we are investing so much into the work of translation. We're seeing great progress, but let me tell you, there is so much yet to go to reach what we feel God would have us do, what we feel is God's work for us, in translating my Bible commentary into many different languages and in making it available free of charge, no ads, no annoyance. Look, I don't even notice if you notice on our YouTube channel, we don't even have ads on our YouTube channel um, because we want it to be a great experience for you and just free of charge in as many ways as we can bring it to you. So thank you for joining us today. Join us next week. I'll be with you again, God willing, and if we live. And again, thanks so much for joining us. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.